I was raised in Florida, as you know, and, and one of the great dangers in Florida, at least at the beach, beyond Jaws, is the riptide. And uh, the riptide can be very, very serious. And whenever there's a riptide, they, they put up the red flag at the, uh, at the lifeguard stand, and the lifeguards are on heightened alert. Uh, these men and women are trained. Uh, they're, they're, they are searching the, uh, the, uh, the water, looking back and forth for people that might get caught unaware of a riptide. Because a riptide can take you out to where you don't intend to go in just a moment of time. And in just a matter of minutes, you can lose your life if you get caught in a riptide. It doesn't matter how strong of a swimmer you are. It doesn't matter how, uh, how many times you've been out in the ocean. A riptide can get you and take you out where you don't want to go. And it can take you below the surface just like that. The only people that will venture out into the water when those red flags are up are people that they're unaware of it. Maybe they've traveled from, uh, from another part of the country. They've never been to the beach. They're not really aware of what those, what those red flags mean. And so they can often find themselves in, in a very dangerous situation very quickly. Sometimes the immature or the stupid. That is, they know. Uh, they know that it's, that it's dangerous, but they're foolhardy. But as they think, you know, I, I'm young, I'm strong, I'm vibrant, I can swim well. And, and, and so they're either immature or foolish or stubborn or hard-headed. And they put themselves in a very dangerous situation. And without, uh, without the, the quick response of a very strong lifeguard, those people could very quickly lose their, lose their lives. You know, lifeguards are given the task of rescuing the, per uh, the perishing. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. That we are entrusted as the people of God to rescue the perishing. What I'd like to do is to read to you a passage from the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The words of Paul from the book of Galatians and the words of James from the little epistle of James, and then to talk with you about this idea, rescue the perishing. Now, let me first direct your attention to the words of Jesus. They're found in Matthew chapter 18. In fact, you might even turn there. Uh, I'd had them on the screen, and I, I went this morning and had them taken from the screen because I think it's good for you actually to see these words in your own Bible. There's something about reading them and underlining them and marking them in your Bible that that leaves a little bit more of an indelible impression on our soul. Because these are the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. In Luke chapter 15, there's a parable very much like this parable. Only it's got a slightly different emphasis in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, it's about a lost sheep. There's a parable of a lost 
sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And the point of those parables is how God has a heart for those who are spiritually lost. Those that are unregenerate. Those who don't know Jesus. This parable, though, is a little bit different. This is a parable about one of his sheep that does know him. In fact, he describes this sheep as a little one, an immature one, a young one. And just like Jesus has a heart for the lost that sends him out searching, he also has a heart for the wayward, for those who are perishing, for those who are straying, and he goes out looking for them as well. The second passage is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul's addressing the same kind of issue. He's writing to a church. He's not writing to, to, to lost people. He's writing to a church. And you see it in the very first word, brethren. Or we could say brothers and sisters. He's writing to a congregation or congregations in Galatia. Brothers and sisters, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, now, by that, he doesn't mean that you, by happenstance, come upon a brother or sister and they are, you catch them on, off guard, doing something they shouldn't do, engaging in a sinful activity. When he says caught in any trespass, it's like, it's like a bear that's been caught in a trap or an animal that's been caught in a cage. Caught in that sense. Not coming upon them in a, in a surprising moment, but, but they're caught and they can't get out. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is those who are mature and seasoned in their faith, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the goal is restoration. It's not humiliation. It's not it's not anything other than restoration. And you restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You do it kindly, caringly, lovingly. Each one looking to yourself, that is, you better be careful because sometimes in the very midst of trying to help someone in a riptide, you yourself can lose your life. It says, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted you'll not be overwhelmed you'll not be caught in that same sin and then there's the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 he he ends this brief epistle in kind of a striking sort of way kind of a stunning sort of conclusion uh, not in the way that we typically see epistles end and so he says my brethren or you could say brothers and sisters if any among you strays from the truth, wanders off the path, gets lost from the truth, and one turns him back, that is the spiritual one in Galatians 6.1, the shepherd that goes out looking for that, for that wayward sheep in Matthew 18, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
We could preach an entire sermon on each one of those verses. And there's so much we could draw out from each one. But what I want to do is I want to look at them collectively. I want to think about them in their entirety in just a moment without doing a a fine, uh, detailed analysis of each one. And I want to bring up three thoughts this morning for your consideration. The first one is this. Truths for the church from Jesus, Paul, and James. Three truths that I want, I want to make you aware of from, from these three passages of Scripture. I think they, they resonate in the, in the ethos of, of what we've read. The first one is this. God's love is an active love, and he goes searching for those who have wandered. God's love is an active love. He goes searching for those who have wandered. He doesn't just sit with the 99 and say, I, I, hope, I hope that one comes back. I hope the wayward one doesn't get eaten by wolves. I hope he's not seriously injured and, and stumbles over the edge of a cliff. No, God's love is an active love. Just like in Luke 15, God goes seeking the lost, God also goes seeking after the wayward. And if that's the way God's love is, that's the way our love should be. The more like God we are, the more concerned we are about people. The more concerned we are about those who don't know Jesus, and the more concerned we are about those parts of our spiritual family that have fallen away from Jesus. That is, you can't read these three passages and not feel the pathos of God's love for the wayward. He doesn't wash his hands of them. He doesn't show disdain for them. He doesn't even show disgust for them. He demonstrates a love for them. God's love is an act of love. And it goes searching for those who have wandered. The second thing I want you to notice is that God rejoices over those who have been restored. God rejoices over those who have been restored. Rather than putting them on the the naughty list and they've got to prove themselves for a period of time, there's a rejoicing over the fact that God has done a great work in the life of that wayward brother or sister. And as we maybe were involved in in the reclaiming and the restoration of that person, we rejoice with God. God gets much glory for himself when wayward brothers and sisters are restored. And rather than looking at them with disgust or disdain or a questioning of motives, we ought to join in the party. We ought to join in the, in, the, in, the, in the heart and mind of God that God has done a great work in the restoration of this brother or sister. God rejoices over those who have been restored, and so should we. The third thought is this. God expects those of us who are spiritually mature to be be involved in the reclaiming of those who have wandered. God expects those of us who are spiritually mature to be involved in the reclaiming of those who have wandered. They've wandered from the truth. So what do we do? Well, we, we don't just sit back and do nothing. 
whether we're mature or immature in our faith, young or old in our faith, whether we, whether we may know a person or not know them intimately and closely, there's something that all of us can do. All of us can pray. All of us can pray for a brother or sister who's stumbled and fallen into sin, who's been caught by a sin, because we recognize, except by the grace of God, we could be there. That could be us. There's, there's nothing inherently right so right about us that given the right circumstances and the right situation and, and, the, and the longevity of, a, of time that we ourselves might not find ourselves wandering from the truth, all of us can pray. Some of us need to be on the search and rescue team. And it needs to be those that are more seasoned and mature. Why? Well, if there's something that is, that is certain death in a riptide is for someone that's not a very good swimmer to go out and try and save someone who is going under. Both people will die. The one that is, that is sinking will take down the one that is less able to swim. What you need is that lifeguard. What you need is someone that's, that, that understands the way those currents work. What you need is someone that can keep their mind because when you get out there to them as they're struggling just to stay alive, they may very well try to take you down by pushing you down as they are pushing themselves up because they're in the final stages of life. They're barely able to get enough oxygen to the brain. They've taken in a lot of water. And so the search and rescue team needs to be those that are the, the more mature. It's, it's not a task for those who are themselves struggling just to, just to stay above water. Well, you might say, Pastor, I'm young, I'm immature. Do I, do I have a role in my BFG? If someone in my BFG is struggling and wayward and, and sinking, well, you pray and then you not only pray for them, you pray for the leaders of your BFG. You pray for the leaders of the, of the ministerial staff as they go out on a, a search and, and rescue mission. So God expects those who are strong to be involved in the reclaiming of those who have wandered from, from the truth. Those are truths for the church from Jesus, Paul, and James. But a second thing I want to speak to you about is this, a warning to the church. You may be in danger of straying from God and not even know it. In fact, often a person doesn't realize they're caught in a riptide until it's almost too late. It's not like they're, they're enjoying the, the journey. All of a sudden they're seized they're going under, they're being washed out to sea before they even know it. You see, you may be in danger of straying from God and not even know it. Very few people just say in their mind, I'm going to wander from God, I'm going to stray from God, I'm going to engage in behavior that is going to endanger my soul. Not many people are like that. It happens slowly, imperceptibly. It happens in what appears to be insignificant increments. A little here and a little there, because Satan knows that if he shows his hand, all of his hand, too quickly, the person's not going to want to go there. 
So what he shows is just a little bit at a time. It's just a little bit of a drifting. You know how the beach will just take you as you're in the water. It just seems like you go in at one place and, and before you know it, you're way down the beach. Well, it happens unknowingly. You know how I am when I, when my kids, when I go to the, the beach with my kids or grandkids. I'm, I mean, I'm like the all-observant eye. And it's not like all of a sudden I look up and they're way down the beach. I'm walking down the beach with them and following them along the way. Because I lived on the coast long enough to know that all of a sudden you look around and you, and you get out of the water and you, you have no idea, where's, where's my family? You, you've just been drifting slowly, unknowingly. Well, let me mention just a couple of things this morning. The first thing is this, sin flourishes in isolation. Sin flourishes in isolation. If you're not actively involved in an evangelical church, you're drifting. An evangelical church is a a church that believes the gospel, preaches the gospel, sings the gospel. If you're not actively involved in an evangelical church, you are drifting. Because Satan wants to separate you from the church. He wants to separate you from the people of God and he wants to separate you from the truth of God. Satan lives in darkness. And darkness longs to be hidden. Darkness hates the light. And so if God uses people to expose the darkness of our light, we flee from the light. Well, I'll go to a place or a part of the body of Christ where I I can't be seen, where I'm not revealed, where my rough edges can't be diminished. And what you find is people are casual attenders, casual comers and goers. But God himself has called us to be a part of the body of Christ. He created the church. The church is a family. And family stick together. Family don't flee and run and hide. Family sticks together. Family keeps everybody in the boat. They may, be, they may try and jump out of the boat. They might try and flee the boat. We grab onto them and try to get them back into the boat as best we're able. We, we, we stay in the boat. Why? Because in the, in the early church, the church often depicted itself in drawings as a boat. And when you begin to jump out of the boat, and you begin to separate yourself from God's people, you're beginning to wander from God. A lot of people don't want to be a part of a church because they know it means being a part of the people of God. So it's easy to sit on the fringes. It's easy to be the casual observer. It's easy to come in and enjoy the service and then to leave. It's more difficult to rub shoulders with people. It's more difficult to have to to work things out with people. It's it's more difficult to have to to rub the rough edges off of one another. So it's much easier just to step back and uh, I'm just not going to be engaged. I'm not going to be involved. I'm not going to develop relationships. I'm not going to blend my life with the lives of others. It's too much. It's too time-consuming. You are straying from the truth. 
You're wandering from God and you don't even know it. You're not doing it intentionally. But that's the way Satan is. He does it incrementally. The second thing I would say about a warning to the church is sin is stronger than you are. In fact, I would say sin is much stronger than you are. And I could say the same thing about myself. Sin is stronger than I am. And if you flirt with sin, you'll fall. If you flirt with sin, you'll fall. Solomon had such wise advice for his son in Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon is warning his son about, about the adulteress. Some translations depict the, the, the lady as a prostitute. And Solomon is saying to his son, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Paul put this way in the pastoral epistles, flee from sexual immorality. You can say that about every sin. If you flirt with sin, it will consume you. It will defeat you. And so you've got to be growing in your passion and hatred of sin. I need to be growing in my my passion and and hatred of sin. And, And I need to be reminded that Christ is stronger than my sin. I may not be stronger, but Christ is stronger. Never forget, not only is Christ stronger than your sin, he is stronger than you. He's even stronger than your desire for sin. Christ is stronger. Christ is greater. Christ is able to keep us. That's why we've got to stay tenaciously connected to him. We've got to be wrapped up in him. We need to be like Mary Magdalene on Resurrection Sunday. When Mary Magdalene discovered that Jesus was alive, she ran and she wrapped her arms around him so very tight. She wasn't going to let him go. She wasn't going to let him get out of her sight. And he said, listen, go tell my disciples, I've got a mission for you. You're going to see me again. It's going to be all right. I'm not here to leave. Go tell the disciples, he said to her. But we need to cling to him just like she clung to Jesus with a tenacity of spirit and determination because Christ is stronger than our sin and he's stronger than our desire for sin. So a warning to the church, you may be in danger of straying from God and not even know it. But the third thought is this. What are the evidences of genuine repentance for those who have strayed from the truth and the church? What does repentance look like? What does genuine repentance look like? You know, there's, there's the sorrow that comes sometimes with getting caught. Uh, there's, the, there's the embarrassment by, by being, our sin being brought to the light. That doesn't necessarily comport with, re, with repentance or godly sorrow. If I see that I've wandered from the truth, or for most of us, it would be an area of our, of our life that we need repentance and, and, uh, and sanctification and where we need to be made more like Jesus. Because all of us who love Jesus are in the process of being made more and more into the image of Jesus. 
And he's constantly, he's constantly highlighting the sin in our lives that has to be dealt with. Sometimes in his goodness, he'll give us a little reprieve. He'll give us a few moments to catch our breath, maybe a, a season where we, can, where we can relax for a moment. Then, all, then there he comes again. I call him the eternal prodder. But he keeps poking areas of my life and he'll get one area by his grace of my life where it ought to be with a great degree of obedience and I can think, man, oh man, now I'm where I need to be and then lo and behold, before I know it, there he is poking another area in my life and I can run, I can try and hide, I can wander off, I can, I can push the body of Christ to arm's distance, I don't, I don't like what I'm seeing about myself, I'm getting tired of him highlighting my sin to me and so I'll just push everybody away but he's he's not easily put off is he it's good to know what genuine repentance authentic repentance looks like first genuine repentance starts with a recognition of sin it's recognizing that my behavior in this particular area is sinful behavior that means it is hated by God. That it's not just, well, you know, I've just got a short fuse. That's just the way I am. God just made me that way. And praise God, I just got a short fuse. No, that's, that's not acceptable, is it? Well, I just say things that I know they, hurt, they, they cut across the grain. They kind of hurt people's feelings. But listen, I just speak my mind. That's not acceptable, is it? Genuine repentance recognizes that whatever behavior it is that he's pinpointing is sinful behavior. The second thought goes along with it. Genuine repentance manifests itself in a godly sorrow for sin. A godly sorrow. That is, it hurts that I've hurt God and I've hurt God's people. It's not that worldly sorrow I mentioned a moment ago where, where someone may, might hear me speaking harshly to my wife and all of a sudden I recognize, oh man, I've been caught, I really feel bad about, I feel bad maybe that someone saw me. I, I feel bad that somebody overheard me. I'm a little bit embarrassed about it. It's something else to recognize, I've hurt my wife. I've sinned against her. I've sinned against God. And that sin to grieve me because I've hurt the person I love most in this world and more importantly I've hurt my father who's redeemed me by the blood of his son genuine repentance authentic repentance manifests itself in a godly sorrow for sin third Genuine repentance leads to a confession of sin. Genuine repentance leads to a confession of sin. The word confession means to say the same thing. It's to agree with God about what God says about my sin. And the confession of my sin should be as wide as the sin itself. That is, if I sinned against my, uh, against my wife, that's who I need to confess it to. I need to say to her, honey, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. Would you please forgive me so that our relationship, fellowship, communion can, can be right. I've confessed my sin to, to God. Our confession is typically as broad as our, 
as our sin. But it leads to confession to God. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not being resaved. There's a restoration of fellowship. Sin calls a, causes a disconnect in our relationship with God, just like it does in a, in a relationship with another person. If Jalen and I were in constant friction and we were constantly saying things that were harmful and hurtful to one another, well, there's going to be a disconnect in our relationship, a disconnect in our fellowship, a, a diminishing of our love and affection for one another. Well, the same is true with God. It's not that we need to be resaved. We're justified by faith apart from the works of the law, but there, there needs to be a, a restoration of communion with God. So genuine repentance leads to a confession of sin. If I speak harshly to my children, I need to ask my children to forgive me. In fact, growing up, we told our children, I didn't always practice it this well, this way, but we said, you can speak to us what you feel and what you think, you, got to tell, you, can, you can tell us about how you think we're doing things, but you, you need to do it with, with respect, and you need to do it showing the right kind of, the right kind of deference to us as your, as your parents. And, and they took advantage of it. Uh, they used it, to, the, they used it uh, to, to their advantage just as they ought to, because sometimes I would be very stern, and I might rebuke them for, for what would be nothing more than just a, childish irresponsibility and I would rebuke them as if it were a willful act of defiance and it showed how immature I was they would show how mature they would be when they would say daddy that was too hard daddy you spoke to me too sternly or it was just an accident I didn't mean to do it and there needs to be a genuine confession. And so I would say in my better moments, not in that moment often. I usually wasn't my better moment. Usually I would think, who do you think you are? You're nine years old and I'm quite a bit older than that. And eventually in my better moments, I would come to understand, you know, they're absolutely right. It was a, a glass of spilled milk. It was a bicycle that was left in the driveway. It was not an act of willful disobedience. And in my better moments, I'd go back and I'd say, hey, Lydia, John, Paul, I'm very sorry. I, I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. Would you please forgive me? And you find your children are always so much more generous than we are. Inevitably, they put their arms around me, kiss me on the cheek, and they say something like, that's okay, Daddy. And our confession is to bring about restoration. The fourth thing about genuine repentance is it causes a person to fight their sin with a renewed zeal. It's not, you know, I, I think I'll just withdraw. I think I'll just shrink back. It's not that I'll just say, you know, I'm really, I, I wish I hadn't done it, so I'll just pull away from the church a little bit. No, it causes them to have a renewed zeal toward holiness. It causes them to fight that sin more passionately. Because this is the way that I, th I think about 
about sin. Sin is like, often like digging a trench. And if you dig the trench long enough, the flow of water is going to be, become much, much more pervasive. Especially when it rains, it begins to, begins to act like a, like a river. And so if you've allowed a sin to go unaddressed in your life for a long period of time, what happens is you've dug a deep trench and, and that water is flowing. So you genuinely and authentically and in a heartfelt way, you hate that. You, you, come, to your, you come to your senses and you, you ask the Lord to forgive you. You ask those maybe you've offended to forgive you and, and you make every determination. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press into the body of Christ and I'm going to fight my sin. But what you have to understand is the confession of a sin that's been a prolonged sin, it doesn't just it doesn't eliminate it just like that. It's not like you can just say, I'm not going to speak harshly to my wife anymore. I'm not going to criticize my kids unnecessarily anymore. I'm not going to do this particular activity anymore because we've dug that ditch for a very long time and the flow through it is very, very strong. But what you decide to do is you begin to fill that ditch in. Uh, you're not able to do it in a day or maybe a week or maybe even a month and maybe sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back and just as you think you're beginning to get a great degree of, of obedience in that area, you fall again. So what you do is you just pick yourself up, you dust yourself off by the grace of God, you make your confession to God, you confess your sin to, uh, to brothers and sisters in Christ and then you start filling it, filling it in again by the grace of God and for the glory of God. See, genuine repentance causes a person to fight their sin with a renewed zeal. Well, let me see if I can wrap it all up with two, with two final thoughts. One a word of uh, encouragement and the other a word of warning. The word of encouragement, you can't be any more encouraging than reading from the Bible. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James that we read earlier. Jude 24 and 25 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Cling tenaciously to Jesus, and Jesus, by his grace and for his glory, will assist you in the putting of sin to death. He will do it by pushing you towards the church. He will do it by planting you deeply within the body of Christ. But by the grace of God and for the glory of God, he will do it. The word of warning comes from C.S. Lewis. This is a word of warning particularly to those of us who are on the other side of middle age. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts.
if Satan wanted me to commit adultery on my wife, he wouldn't knock on my door tomorrow and say, you're going to have sex with a woman you're not married to. He would begin to try and cause there to be disruption in my marriage. He would try to get me to become resentful toward my wife. He would try to bring into my life someone of the opposite sex that I could take my confidence in, that I could share my struggles with, someone that could affirm my strengths and help cast the blame on my wife, just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Someone that would exude all of the characteristics and qualities that my wife doesn't exude, or maybe I'm blinded myself to seeing. And then we'd have little private discussions and we'd text back and forth and we'd have coffee and out-of-the-way coffee shops. I mean, no harm done, obviously, just text messages, just coffee, just conversations that are always saturated with, pray for me. My wife's very difficult. I wish she had more of your qualities. Pray for me. Pray for me. Little by little, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's a gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, no milestones, without signposts, and all of a sudden, you find yourself there. It may be today that, as we sing in just a moment, you would... You would take the opportunity and just pray and say, Father, help me, to, help me to know where in my life are you putting your finger? Um, you're, not on, you're not on your way out the door. You're not on your way running from the church. You're not trying to, to withdraw from, from community and minimize the relationships that can often rub one against the other. But just say, Father, where, where, today, where are you putting your finger today? Some of you might say, you know, I... I need, to make a, I need to make a stronger commitment to, to the body of Christ. I need to not run. I need to be planted. I don't need to hide. I need to engage. And maybe that's what you would, you would pray about today. Maybe you're looking for a church family. We'd invite you to come forward. We're going to have some staff guys here at the front that can introduce you to someone. We've got a, a first step class going on right now. got... Uh, 10, 12 people in there that have made the commitment, hey, we're joining on, we're going to become a part, we're going to press in, we're going to reach out, and we would love to have you come forward and let us talk with you about the membership process. Or maybe you'd just like to talk to one of our folks about your spiritual life. You just find yourself a little bit shaky right now. Listen, we just, we would love, we would love to serve you and minister to you if you would let us. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And we'll sing together. And uh, Gabriel will come and give a few announcements in just a few minutes. And, and then we will uh, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that you have given us the privilege of being a part of a church family there's not a single one of us that do it perfectly. There's not a single one of us that even do it well without your, your grace. But you have allowed us to be a part of a church family. And Father, you've given us your word to instruct us and guide us and direct us to rescue 
the perishing. So in these final moments, we pray that your spirit would have your way among us for our good, but even more for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.